we are entering into the book of Daniel and uh, with the time we have left, I want to begin in, in chapter 1, verses 1 through 2. It says, during the thir- third year of King Jehoiakim's reign in Judah, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came to Jerusalem and besieged it with his armies. The Lord gave him victory over King Jehoiakim of Judah. When Nebuchadnezzar returned to Babylon, he took with him some of the sacred objects of the temple of God and placed them in the treasure house of his gods in the land of Babylonia. So we looked last week at Josiah's life, the the father of Jehoiakim. We studied the process at the end of Josiah's life where um, what I think I see in that is that Josiah had early in his life been consulting, seeking God in his latter years. um, I think he moves out of his own history instead of moving out of the word from the Lord. I laughed because it kind of bothered some people that I said that. I'm like, it's okay. It's my perspective. You don't have to believe it. Um, But really what I wanted us to come away with that is I wanted us to be a people that are cautious to never let our historical victories inform our future endeavors. But instead, we allow the word of the Lord to lead us, that we're disciplined to allow the scriptures to lead us. So here we have King Jehoiakim, who's the, the second son of Josiah. He's a vassal leader, which means he's placed there really because he's a paper tiger, because Josiah goes out against the king of Egypt. The king of Egypt says, I don't want to fight you, and my battle's not with you. King of Egypt, because in this point in the world, we have three major world powers all in the Mesopotamian area. We have the Assyrians, we have the Babylonians, and the Egyptians. These are the three world powers. And so the Egyptian king decides the Babylonians are rising in power, and the, and the way I can get ahead and get a jump on them is I'll go up and make an alliance with the Assyrians and we'll combat them and take them out. So on his way to align with the Assyrians, King Josiah sees and hears of his coming and goes out to meet him to fight. And the king says, the Lord told me, your God told me to go do this. Why are you here? My battle's not with you. Josiah refuses to listen, ends up dying in that battle. Nico comes back, takes the rightful son, and puts the second son on the, on the throne. The only downside of the move of God is I cry like a baby. So after Nico and the Assyrians go up against the Babylonians, they don't win. The Babylonians win. So, the, so here we have King Nebuchadnezzar coming back to Jerusalem to take the spoil of war because Jerusalem was, was already defeated by Egypt. They're now under his control. So that's where we're at, lay of the land. There's a phrase, the Lord gave him Nebuchadnezzar, is who he's talking about. The Lord gave Nebuchadnezzar victory over King Jehoiakim of Judah. I want to take a look at who Nebuchadnezzar was, because as we break this down, it's important for us to understand what's going on in a historical point of view. If you look at Nebuchadnezzar, and you just look at him from what the history books would say about him, not from what the scriptures would say, what you come come up with is a man who is is known for his military prowess. He's He's a war hero. He moves into power. The first thing he does is he moves into power is he makes an alliance with the Medes. And maybe you're familiar with the, the, the Median Persian Empire. They will, they will be the next major rise to power. But he makes an alliance with them by marrying one of the, one of the daughters. And what he does in his, under his rule is he unites the Mesopotamian area. This is, this is the known world at this time. He leads what is considered to be the most influential kingdom in the world. The Neo-Babylonian Empire is, is largely considered one of the most influential empires of its day and one of, the, one of the best pictures of how to lead strong. 
He's a brilliant strategist militarily. He does some things that cause people to just absolutely love him. He's the first king of this time period that will give women rights. And, and, and because prior to this, the women were treated like possessions and slavery. He will lift them in his, under his rule to a place of status where they have rights and they, they have their own voice. It's not the kind of rights that we're talking about in the United States, but what he's doing is he's definitely innovative as a leader. He's one of the most artistically supporting leaders this region's ever known. If you, if you study old Babylon, the city of, Babel, of Babylon, you will see that under his rule, there's an incredible explosion of the arts. The artistic community comes to life. He funds it, he fuels it, and so they love him. He's also a devoutly religious man. So he's a man of, of focus, and what he focuses on is, is the Babylonian gods. So from a world perspective, from a historical perspective, Nebuchadnezzar, if you look it up, he's actually Nebuchadnezzar II, was what they, his father was Nebuchadnezzar. He's considered one of the greatest leaders the world's ever had. And I want to consider this phrase because it jumps out at me. This phrase, the Lord gave him victory over King Jehoiakim of Judah. I want to look at it because what it says, if we really look at it in its blunt statement, it says that God allowed a pagan king to overrun his people. God handed his kids, our loving, faithful father handed his kids over to an absolute pagan king. We go back to Josiah's reign. There's a prophet in the land named Habakkuk at this time. It's important that we understand that sometimes we open our Bibles and we think it just works chronologically per book, but actually there's a lot of different voices going on at the same time period. Habakkuk is in the land under Josiah's rule. Habakkuk is at, will actually be alive during Daniel's, during Daniel's time as well. And God tells Habakkuk that he's raising the Babylonians to world power. He tells him what he's going to do. In chapter one, the Lord says this, look at the nations and be amazed, watch and be astounded at what I will do. For I'm doing something in your day, something you wouldn't believe even if someone told you about it. I am raising up the Babylonians to be a new power on the world scene. This is 15 to 20 years prior to this elevation. So God tells him prophetically it's gonna happen. They are a cruel and violent nation who will march across the world and conquer it. They're notorious for their cruelty. They do as they like and no one can stop them. Now why in the world would God do that? If I'm Habakkuk and I'm in this time period and I'm one of the people of God, I have a couple questions that would come to mind instantly. If you're such a loving, faithful God, why would you do this? I, if I'm honest, it would cause me and maybe would cause us to just supremely doubt that he's actually in control. How many know when chaos breaks out all around us, it's very easy to begin to doubt that God's on the throne and he's actually taking care of things? And so the prophet Habakkuk will respond to God in much the similar fashion. What he says is akin to kind of a cross between, are you crazy? And I think this is a terrible idea. He says, are you just going to wipe us out? Is that your plan? And God's response to him, I love it. He doesn't actually answer the question. Anybody ever had God do that? Where he doesn't really deal with, you're like, time out. I don't think you heard the question. He says to him, look at the proud He's speaking about the Babylonians. They trust in themselves and their lives are crooked, but the righteous will live by faith. So this is where we're at as the book of Daniel begins. This is the landscape, the geopolitical landscape. This is what's going on with the people of Israel. 
What I want to answer this morning is I want to ask the question, what was God up to with Nebuchadnezzar and this Babylonian culture? And there's a couple of things that come to mind that I want to look at. The first being what God was doing was dealing with his people and their lack of consistent devotion to him. There's a term that's used through the scriptures. How many have ever come across the term idolatry? It's not a term that carries a lot of weight in our culture. We don't really know what it means. Maybe you grew up in church culture like I did, and they tried to tell you that your TV was an idol. While it could be, I don't think that's what God's talking about. What he's talking about is that they had this tendency to not want to devote themselves to him. They wanted to chase God or be God's people, but they also wanted to have an equal share in everything around them. They wanted what I would call mixture. They weren't purely focused on the Lord. They wanted to have God be part of their lives, but they also wanted to pursue other gods and other religions. There had been, if you remember last week, we talked about the words, the, the phrases that were assigned to the kings. There was either the good phrase, which is, he did what was right in the sight of the Lord, or there was the negative phrase, he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord. At this time period, coming into Jehoiakim's reign, prior to Josiah, Israel had had a string of guys who did evil in the sight of the Lord. One of those was Jehoiakim's great-grandfather. He's a man named Manasseh. Second Chronicles 33, speaking of Manasseh, it says he did what was evil in the Lord's sight, imitating the detestable practices of the pagan nations whom the Lord had driven from the land ahead of the Israelites. He rebuilt the pagan shrines his father Hezekiah had destroyed. He constructed altars for the image of Baal and set up Asherah poles. He also bowed before all the stars of heaven and worshiped them. So here we have the leader of Israel who's leading the people of God into all these different types of worship, not to devotion to Yahweh. It's not that he wasn't devoted to Yahweh at some level. It's that he saw Yahweh as just one of the gods that he could worship. The Asherah poles. It's a word phrase we read across in the Old Testament. We're like, I don't really know what that is. Here's what the Asherah poles were. Where they were derived from was all of the other gods in the region, the Mesopotamian region. All of the other nations believed that they had a god called the God of Gods, and they believed it was the main god. And what they believed was that God had a wife, and so the wife's name was Asur, and the, so they would set up these worship places where they would go worship to the, the wife of the great God. And so the children of Israel grabbed onto this idea from the Canaanites around them, and, and what they would do is they would go do detestable practices, which is probably just a good phrase to leave it at. And they would take, at, at these Asherah poles, they would worship with their detestable practices, and then they would say to Yahweh, see, we're worshiping your, with your, your wife, it's unto you. And so they were mixing everything and crossing it up. And the scripture would, would report the story that God didn't like it. It bothered him. The phrase bowed low before all the stars is interesting because bowed low before all the stars is an indicator that Manasseh just viewed Yahweh as one of the other potential gods out there. Because this region would believe in what's called a pantheon of gods, which they believed in all kinds of different gods. And so Manasseh leads Israel into this. And so God will speak over Manasseh's life that he's going to bring judgment on this because the job of a leader is to lead the people of God in the direction they're supposed to go, to hold them true to him, and Manasseh doesn't do that. It'll be spoken over Josiah's life because of Josiah's passion for God. God says to him, we looked at this last week, this, this certain coming judgment won't happen in your lifetime because of the way you followed me. 
So one of the things God was doing with the Babylonians and with Nebuchadnezzar was dealing with this tendency in his people to not be purely devoted to him. But the second thing is where I want to spend most of our time because I think God was dealing with what I would call the great deception in the world. And to understand this Nebuchadnezzar, to understand what God was doing with Babylon, there's no way to do it without studying the Babylonian gods, without studying this ancient world. So we dove in this week. I probably did 50 hours of what I would call comparative religion, comparative mythology study. Dustin was here, he was leading worship this morning, and we're, he's part of the study team, and he's like, you realize people do this for their doctorate thesis. I'm like, oh, we're just doing it for Sunday. But see, the ancient world believed in a multiplicity, a pantheon of gods. There were several different gods. So did Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. In fact, how many are familiar with the story of the Tower of Babel? In the story of the Tower of Babel, the way it's told in Sunday school is there's a bunch of people who thought it was a really good idea to see if they could get up to God. So they built a tower as tall as they could get because they thought that they could get to God if they did that. That's not actually what happened in the Tower of Babel. What happened in the Tower of Babel was they, feel, they believed they found a spiritual high point, which was a synergistic moment where the spirit realm and the unseen realm and the natural realm would collide. And so they were building a ziggurat. A ziggurat looks like a pyramid except it has stair steps. They were building this ziggurat to a god, a very specific god. His name was Mar. Duke. They had a deep belief in this unseen world. Now, when I talk about gods, it gets confusing because we use the term God for our God, capital G. I'm talking about little g gods. Now, if you're raised like I was in church, you believe this is mythology. It's just weird idols. They're not really real. I actually think we're wrong. Because I came across something this week as we were studying and it, it started this whole, anybody, how many have ever done a lot of research in school? You know how you jump into one of these research rabbit holes and you try to find the bottom? So you're like, and you just feel like you're, you're just free falling into pages and pages of material. So I had my desk spread out and there's just documentation. I studied Hinduism and Chinese mythology and, some, and which the Pentecostal kid in me was like, be careful, be careful, be careful, you might get infected. But trying to, because I came across something that made me stop. One of the gods that the Babylons believed in is a god named Enlil. I think this is the key to unlocking what's going on. Remember, we're trying to answer the question, what was God up to? So let me read you what historical literature will say about this god Enlil, little g-god. Enlil was considered as one of the Mesopotamian gods in the supreme triad, along with Anu, which was the god of the heavens, also known as An, and Enki, god of wisdom and earth. This brings us to the question, what natural or supernatural element did Enlil himself represent? Interestingly enough, this is where the historians and linguists are baffled alike. For the very Sumerian word Lil means ghost or even haunted. To that end, Enlil could be interpreted as Lord Ghost. But that wouldn't make much sense, especially given the importance of Enlil in Sumerian religion. So, as a reinterpretation, with practicality taken into consideration, Enlil may have been portrayed as the lord of the air, or basically the deity representing sky and atmosphere. It was at this point that I went, wait, time out. Anybody else see the trinity in that? You say, what's the trinity? 
Theologically, the scriptures would teach God will, will present himself through the Old Testament as a plural God who is one. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Let us make man in our image. The word our there, Elohim, it means plural. It's a really, really important central point to the scriptures. And so all of a sudden, when I saw this, I went, wait, I want to go. Now, I don't know where the idea came from. But the idea was, I think I want to go on a journey and see what other similarities are in all these religions. Here's what we discovered. As we cross-referenced Norse mythology, Sumerian mythology, Chinese mythology, Hindu mythology, all of a sudden we realized that many of these old religions contain this same idea of a supreme triad. They also have a plethora of things they line up in. There's five that jump out. They all believe in creation from nothingness. They believe in the idea of a sacrifice being necessary for the beginning of creation. Most of these old religions believe that God was dismantled, his parts were used to create the elements of the earth. Most of them believe in a, uniformly in a great flood. Most of them believe in a physical geographical location which it all began with. And the interest, they almost all believe in the ability for younger gods to rise up and displace older established gods. In other words, they're all espousing a nearly identical story with different characters. Now you're like, what in the world are we doing? Trust me. I looked at these five tenets and I began to see something I would call the great deception. The triune God, Yahweh, is mimicked by the supreme triad. The stories of Yahweh's interaction with humanity, which through the scripture is this God who's relational and tender, are replaced with stories of, that are basically built out of fear that God is gonna get you. He is to be feared, but not feared in a healthy, reverent way, to be feared because he's erratic. The locations of the interaction with God his interaction with earth, what we would call Eden, are replaced with different locations. All of these have a unique consistency. They all believe supernatural power exists and is accessible through blood. See, the Babylonians were leveraging this witchcraft power through sacred ceremony. And it was the same witchcraft power that we see in all these different religions come up. And the end game for that power was manipulative power which could be harnessed through surrendering to these gods. And then the last thing that was similar in all these is that they all have the possibility inserted that there might be a new god who could replace the old god. Now, consider this logic idea. If you create a story with all the same elements as the original story but just slightly adjust it, Yes, you've plagiarized the original. Yes, you've mimicked the original. But what you've also done is inserted a reasonable doubt over time about original authorship. Does that make sense? And by inserting doubt, what you've done is created a platform where deception can begin. In Isaiah 14, there's a recorded statement that is attributed to Lucifer. And the statement is, Lucifer is the enemy, the devil. The statement is, I will be like the most high. And it's a recorded it's a recorded statement of why he was cast out of heaven. The word like here 
means to be similar, comparable, alike. So the enemy's first desire, what, what caused him to be cast out of heaven, was a desire to be held on par as equal to God. Jesus, in John chapter 8, I have a, a, a theology rule, which is if Jesus said it and we're reading quotes of him, him I don't really have to go prove it, I just got to trust it. You're like, well, that's small-minded. Great, good for you. It's not for me. I just decided to give my life to him, so I'm following what he says. Jesus says this, when he lies and he's speaking of the devil, he speaks his native language for he is a liar and the father of lies. Now, if I think this through, what Jesus is saying is the enemy naturally whispers lies. That's what he does. His his language is to bring deception. So if his original desire was to be viewed or held in authority like God, then perhaps we begin to understand what's really going on. I believe the enemy has been whispering through the ages, through the different mythologies of the world, into the different religions of the world, a very similar story to the story of Yahweh, but one that is just enough different that it causes people to turn away from the true God, question the authenticity of the true God, and to begin to see this God of the Hebrews as just another way to get to the afterlife. So to our question, what was God's agenda with Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon? It was really simple. He was after their gods. Because these gods of Nebuchadnezzar were not mythological creatures. I would submit to us that they were in fact demonic forces, principalities, rulers in high places like Paul will speak of in Ephesians 6. In Ephesians 6, Paul's talking to us, the people of God. Yes, he speaks at first to the Ephesians, but it is understandable. It is uniformly applied to the people of God. And listen to what he says. For we are not fighting against people made of flesh and blood, but against evil rulers and authorities of an unseen world, against those mighty powers of darkness who rule this world, and against wicked spirits in the heavenly realms. All of a sudden, it hit me when I read that. God had a deep desire to walk into Babylon and reveal himself as the king of kings and the God of gods, the real, authentic, true God. He had a desire to come in and break the deception that they've been living under. And he was ready to set the record straight and reveal to both his people and the Babylonians that what they were buying into was a demonic lie. And these were just demonic, this was just the demonic realm mimicking the real God. And to do this, he was going to place his people into a situation so he could reveal his strength. Pause. If this is what he does with the people in the book of Daniel, why would we not assume in our lifetime he will also place us into situations that might be difficult and hard for us to manage? We might not know how to wrap our heads around why we're there. It might even cause us to wonder, are you in control? Do you really know what you're doing? And the reality is, he has an agenda to display himself to the watching world as the king of all glory, because that's who he is. It's not because he's insecure. It's because there's a lie that's been breathed, and it looks right now like a bunch of different world religions, and what he's after is bringing truth to the forefront so they know who to believe in. The second thing I see that I love is I think this man, Nebuchadnezzar, had an actual desire for truth. 
And so God begins a very large-scale evangelism campaign to lead this man who at the time was the most powerful leader in the world, to lead him into a face-to-face encounter with the presence of the real God. So to the question that we ask all the time when we face stuff that we don't know, are you really in control? I want, as we study the book of Daniel, for it to challenge us to believe, you know what? You are in control. Sometimes it looks crazy, but you are doing something. And I signed on to be led by you. The concern I have the most today is with this tendency in Manasseh, the way he led Israel into what we would call mixture. When I say mixture, instead of a pure devotion to God, they wanted to worship God and they wanted to adopt pagan practices and pagan belief systems. I want to say something as strong as I can. There are not multiple paths to the eternal. There is one. He is the truth. He is the way. He is the life. Everything else is a distortion of the original with the intention of leading people away. And we live in a day, we live in a time where this tolerance thing is thrown out to where we can't look at false religions and say they're false. We're like, oh, that's just a path to God. It's not a path to God. That's the tragedy. Our embracing of it is causing us to stay silent on something we need to speak into because it's a path to hell. It's not a path to God. And if God will do this with his people, will put his people in this kind of peril because he has a passion to see an entire nation emancipated from this deception, then we must be willing to recognize calling it a deception is actually what it means to align with God. And I want to challenge us to strip away mythology and strange spiritualism from our lives and come back to a place where we just worship him purely. If it's in the scriptures, we support it. If it's not, we don't, period. There's so many things we're challenged to believe, so many things we're challenged to embrace. My heart cries, church, let's come back to the text. If the scriptures don't support it, we've got to let it go. You see, because what we're going to read about is Daniel and his three friends who are 14 years of age when this takes place. They are 14 when they enter into Babylonian captivity and they enter the retraining process. And what we're going to see is three, four young men who will stand and say, as unpopular as it is, I am standing for him and him alone. To the end, where later on we're going to see, they will make brazen statements like this that I love. You know what? He is capable of saving us. And if he doesn't, it's cool. Still following him. It is time. For we, the people of God, not in arrogance, but in conviction to stand and say, there is a king who has given us righteousness. We will follow it, period. We will eradicate from our lives anything that is contrary to his heart. Let's stand.